Welcome back, everybody. Uh, uh, the second phase of, our, of what's turned out to be a very lively uh, discussion. So we're turning now to think about some wider cultural, historical, political questions that arise and have already been touched on in important ways in the first session. Uh, and our speaker to kick us off uh, in the first instance is uh, Colin Murphy. And uh, Colin's a playwright. He's an author. He's a columnist with the Sunday Business Post. Um, he's written a series of plays, in fact, and one of them is, is currently being broadcast. Uh, I hope people have seen, and there's a two-part, so there's next one Monday, the second part on Monday, which I've been enjoying, and actually Patrick Honahan uh, features in it. Um, somebody I, we were talking earlier looks rather a lot like him, so good job with the casting. Um, uh, he's, his, the plays are guaranteed and bailed out um, that we're both concerned, as you might imagine, with the, the crisis between 2008 and 13. Um, and he has, uh, uh, as, as we say, one showing on TV3 or what is it called, one? Virgin, Vir Virgin Media Ireland. Doesn't trip off the tongue quite so much, but um, he's um, also, also done a play on the Gregory Deal of 1982, so there's this kind of historical interest which has informed your, your dramaturgy. So very much looking forward to Colin's remarks. So Colin, over to you. Um, hi. Um, just to the, um, the gentleman who asked a, a question earlier, I'm not sure if he's still there. Um, I spent the first few years of the crisis making babies. Um, <laughs> and I can say that it's more fun than worrying about the crisis. Um, but we're here today to talk, um, to reflect upon it. Uh, and and uh, well, that's fun too. Um, one of the great changes in Ireland since the crisis has been our discovery of an apparently insatiable demand for economists. Uh, so, uh, I'm sorry, but I'm not here to talk about economics. Um, but I am going to start with something I read recently in the Financial Times. It was an interview with the American cellist, Yo-Yo Ma, who's become a kind of missionary for the use of music to transcend the divisions in our politics and, and society. He said he had started out intending that culture should have a seat at the table of economics and politics. I think that's a fair point. But, he says, I now think culture is the table from which politics and economics can thrive. So I want to talk about culture. Not just culture in the sense of the arts, but culture as the bedrock of our social identity, um, of, our, of our particular humanity. Culture as the glue that binds us uh, in communities and in nation states. Culture as the table at which politics and economics sit, from which they, tr from which they, they may thrive. So first, I'm going to talk about how the culture, I'm going to talk about the culture out of which the crisis emerged and how I've tried to explore that in drama. Uh, second, I'm going to talk about the formative culture of Irish politics. Third, I'm going to talk about the cultural impact of the crisis. Fourth, I want to acknowledge some other significant cultural change of this last 10 years. And I'm going to close by reflecting on the challenges posed for our culture looking ahead. So it's like a very short five-act play. So the first act, act one the culture out of, which, out of which the crisis emerged. Uh, like all of the non-economists here, uh, I found the crisis very alienating. Suddenly, economics and economists were everywhere. I couldn't understand the news. I didn't know what bonds were. I didn't know why people would hold them, why it mattered what age you were if you did hold them, whether you were junior or senior, and why any of them should be burned. I was a journalist writing mostly about the arts, Nobody else in the art seemed to know what was going on either. The political journalists acted like they did, but I didn't really believe them. But I did have a hunch that the bank guarantee would make a good play. The hunch was good. 
I followed up my play on the guarantee with one on what happened next, the bailout, which is going, going out at the moment. These plays were based on research. I talked to people who were involved in the events. And all, of all of those interviews, two in particular stand out for me. One was a hedge fund manager in London. His fund had been enthusiastic about Anglo-Irish Bank early on, and he had continued to follow them closely. And this fund manager gradually realised that Anglo's numbers weren't sustainable. The bank's lending growth was literally off the charts. Now, this wasn't hidden. I mean, Anglo literally boasted about it. But most people saw the evidence and reinterpreted it, reinterpreted it in light of the context, or the context as they believed it to be. So Anglo was helping to drive a belated modernisation of the, of the Irish economy. That modernisation, of course, justified greatly increased demand for credit. Anglo had been recognised as one of the best banks in the world, for God's sake. My hedge fund manager wasn't satisfied by this. So he did something that I suspect no member of the Dublin policy establishment did. He got on a plane and came to Dublin and he went and he visited builders and others in the sector. And he learned that demand had collapsed uh, in the commercial property market, but prices hadn't yet fallen because sellers hadn't dropped them because nobody could afford to take the hit. And nobody was repaying their loans, but the banks were rolling up the interest so as not to have to report the defaults. And so he took a huge short position on Anglo. So how come this was clear to my fund manager, but ignored by or invisible to almost everyone in Ireland? That's where the other source comes in. Uh, this person was a bank director at the time of the crash. He was the sole person I met in my research who seemed to have agonised over what had happened. I could see it in him. It, it had kept him awake at night. He described something extraordinarily simple but incredibly insidious, something I think we'd all recognise from our memories of school playground cliques, a boardroom culture where it was impossible to speak out. Not that it was impossible by dent of force, but it was impossible by dent of culture, where the camaraderie and backslapping and bonhomie and boosterism and wealth and success and confidence and genuine business expertise combined to create a culture that was impervious to criticism and impermeable by dissent. He had failed to challenge this culture and he had failed to speak out. He described this as a failure of moral courage. An awareness of that failure, I think, had tormented him. Now, thanks to the many reports on the crisis, we have a phrase to describe this cultural phenomenon, and it's been mentioned already today, but it's a kind of business school phrase, one that might be technically adequate, but I, I find it dry and mechanistic, and that's groupthink. I prefer to think of this as the power of consensus. I think of it as like a kind of social contract. It's an assumed, implicit set of rules that governs how we behave and speak in public, and perhaps even how we think. George Orwell uses the term orthodoxy. At any given, at any given moment, he says, there is an orthodoxy, a body of ideas which it is assumed that all right-thinking people will accept without question. Anyone who challenges the prevailing orthodoxy finds himself silenced, with surprising effectiveness. Every society can be prey to this, but it seems to me it's particularly potent in Ireland. When I look at the history of institutionalization of vulnerable people here, I see an intolerance of difference and of dissent, and a powerful consensus that troublesome people were better put out of sight, and that if people were out of sight, 
they must, by definition, be troublesome. There's a soci uh, the sociologist Neve Harrigan has developed a thesis that our historical experience, including the colonial one, has dictated that we as a people would place an inordinately high value on relationships as opposed to rules, which were perceived as alien. And if your society is going to place a high value on relationships, it's going to be hostile to people who are willing to jeopardise relationships in pursuit of what they believe to be the truth, people like whistleblowers. Anyway, whatever its origins, this power of orthodoxy, of consensus, of groupthink was clearly a real factor in the crisis. It was a cultural factor that had real economic and political effects. Culture is the table at which politics and economics can thrive. But culture can also set politics and economics astray. So to fix the politics and economics sustainably, we need to fix the culture. Act two, the formative culture of Irish politics. I think clearly one of the formative events in Irish political culture was the Civil War. Eight years ago, shortly before he would sign the bailout, Brian Lenehan of a famous Fianna Fáil dynasty appeared at the hallowed Fine Gael ground of Bail na Blaw to give the annual speech commemorating Michael Collins. Lenehan spoke well. His own people were thrilled. The Fine Gaelers loved him. That moment, I think, marked the symbolic prelude to the substantive act that would mark the collapse of all meaningful distinction between Fine Gael and Fianna Fáil. The bailout. For what was the bailout but a repeat of the treaty? An acceptance by the political establishment of an international agreement that entailed both a humiliating compromise of sovereignty and the pragmatic basis for national recovery. The Greeks attempted to go the de Valera route, standing on national pride, threatening to reject the ultimatums of the Troika. Brian Cowan and Brian Lenehan, the men standing in Dev's shoes, instead took the path of Griffith and Collins. Now, it's common in Irish punditry, particularly on the left, to lament the long tail of the civil war in Irish politics and the consequent lack of a, a clear left-right ideological divide. But practical politics is more about tribe than ideology. It's more about character than policy. This explains the potency of the culture wars in America and the success of Trump and the Tea Party and of Brexit in Britain. The notion of the culture war is that people will divide or can be divided on totemic cultural issues, irrespective of or even against their economic interests. It's not the economy, stupid. It's the culture. America has guns, religion, abortion, multiculturalism. Britain now has Brexit. We had the treaty. The main task of politics is to reconcile conflict in society. It's fairly clear how that happens with economics. Numbers can be split, compromises can be calculated. If the government is made up of two parts Fine Gael to one part Labour, the budgetary correction can be made up of two parts spending cuts to one part tax hikes. Cultural conflict is messier. It threatens to be more zero-sum. You're either pro-gun rights or an enemy of freedom. You're either for gay marriage or a homophobe. Traditionally, Political parties have sought to marshal these conflicts for their own ends and have served to absorb them and redirect them towards the democratic arena. So the Tories contained British hostility to the EU and to immigrants, while Labour contained the hard left. The Republicans contained the libertarian and evangelical strands in American politics. And Fianna Fáil, likewise, redirected the violent hostility to the treaty 
back into electoral politics, and for decades after, it absorbed the radical energies from which that split sprang. But what we're seeing now across much of the West, as Peter, Ma Peter Mayer has documented, is the decline of those traditional political parties. And with that, the loss of their ability to contain and focus conflict within the political realm. Democratic politics requires a bedrock of agreement about the rules of the game, about what's at stake, about how you win, about how the loser is treated. Traditionally, the political parties have promoted this agreement and, and contained dissent. When they break down, where does that dissent go? The fear is that it will be targeted at the system itself. So in Ireland, we have a formative cultural conflict that is no longer represented by the two main parties. Where does that energy go? It will seek expression elsewhere. Now, I don't mean that there are hordes of anti-treatyites armed with Mauser rifles out there hunting for a cause. But the radical political instincts, the character, the culture that informed opposition to the treaty no longer has a natural political home. And that leads me to Act 3, the cultural impact of the crisis. In the election of 2011, Fianna Fáil dropped 25 percentage points in support. Fianna Gael rose by nine points and Labour rose by nine points. So most of the voters that abandoned Fianna Fáil went to those two parties and divided evenly between them. What were those voters looking for? Well, what had Fianna Gael and Labour promised? For three years, Fianna Gael had flirted with the idea of burning bondholders. Leo Varadkar gave this approach a catchphrase with his not another cent. Labour promised transformative change, Labour's way or Frankfurt's way, free fees for students. Once they joined in government, they declared this a democratic revolution. Many of those who put Fianna Gael and Labour into power were voting in expectation of a radical turn in policy. And what do they get? More of the same. Now, I'm not here to criticise that more of the same. Others are more competent to do that. And in any case, I think it was broadly the right strategy. It worked, or at least it didn't fail. We caught an uplift from across the seas, and uh, though problems persist and many were hurt, the country is in an unimaginably better place today than we feared five years ago. Fine Gael and Labour are still bemused that they, got, that they got no credit for this economic success. But what they got was full credit for their inauthenticity. It's not the economy, stupid. It's culture. Those voters who had come in expectation of radicalism deserted them. In October and November 2010, as Ireland entered its bailout programme, the public relations firm Edelman conducted the research for its annual trust barometer, which would be uh, published the following January. Edelman surveys trust in, in 23 uh, wealthy countries annually under four headings, government, business, NGOs and the media, and then it aggregates that to give its global index. So in that January, 11, uh, January 2011 barometer, Ireland had the lowest levels of both global trust and trust in government of the 23 countries. Trust in government was just 20%. And they also did a special survey uh, of the trust levels in, in banks, um, and Ireland's banks had a trust rating of 6%, um, which was also the lowest in the world. Uh, trust in government uh, here has recovered somewhat since. Um, in this year's barometer, it reached 35%, which is a similar level to the US and the UK. In the meantime, trust in the Irish media has tanked. In last year's barometer, we were second lowest uh, to Turkey. Ireland has been close to the bottom of the global index every year since 2011. This year, we're fourth from bottom. And in addition, a trust gap has opened up. What Edelman calls the informed public, 
college educated and higher earning is more trusting than the mass population by 10 percentage points. On both scales, we're towards the bottom. Um, that trust gap also exists, uh, but it's worse in the US and the UK where it's 20 points. So not merely do we have a, crust, a, a, a crisis of trust in our institutions, but that crisis has been exacerbated by a divergence between the trust levels of those on the inside and those on the outside. Take five big issues of the crisis. Uh, the bailout, the treatment of bondholders, NAMA, uh, the EU, uh, water charges. Walk into any pub tonight and try and find somebody who will give you anything more than tepid support, or even that, for any of those issues. Now take the five parties that have been in government in the last number of decades, Fianna Fáil, Fianna Gael, Labour, the Progressive Democrats and the Greens. The vast majority of their senior people agree on all of those issues. But that apparent consensus sits atop a great well of disagreement and dissent in the population as a whole. That dissent needs an outlet. For now, it is founded in protest on individual issues, most obviously water, and in support for a myriad array of smaller parties, alliances and independents, and Sinn Féin is the most obvious winner. So the dissent remains within the system and not targeted at the system itself. For now. Act four, other cultural change coincident with the crisis. Where did you first hear about the bank guarantee? You probably didn't hear about it on Twitter, or Facebook, or WhatsApp, or on your iPhone. I'm old enough to remember the advent of the 24-7 uh, rolling news cycle that was inaugurated with uh, CNN's coverage of the Gulf War. In the past 10 years, that media era has been replaced by the era of social media and the push notification. In the 1990s and early 2000s, the news was always on if you wanted to watch it. Now, we are always on, receiving news and broadcasting it, even making it. In September 2008, just before uh, uh, the, the guarantee, Facebook was a very successful internet company. It had 100 million users and was valued at something under $5 billion. Ten years later, Facebook has over 2 billion monthly active users. It is the biggest institution in human history. It is valued at $500 billion. It has revolutionised how the media industry works and doesn't work, how advertising works and, according to some, how elections work. Next up is how our brains work. Almost all of us are addicted to our phones and to the updates, the dopamine they constantly send us. That's probably rewiring us. Uh, Pascal Donoghue uh, describes the challenge this poses for politics in a recent speech called Renewing the Centre. Social media monetizes a kind of engagement, he said, so it monetizes a kind of engagement that can be delivered in shorter and shorter attention spans. While the work that the state needs to do to meet the needs of the citizens transcends any single attention span because it's so sophisticated. So these phenomena, nothing to do with the crisis, have transformed the lived experience of Ireland over the past 10 years in ways that have little to do with economics and only marginally to do with politics, though they will have political repercussions. The internet was supposed to open our minds and broaden our horizons. But one of the big counterintuitive effects of social media is the retreat into tribalism. Facebook's motto is bringing the world closer together. But it turns out it just brings us closer together in like-minded groups. Social media, it transpires, is a giant engine for manufacturing consensus. Act five, 
the challenges ahead. Culture is the table from which politics and economics can thrive. So what kind of state is our table in? We have a crisis that was caused in part by a cultural predilection to consensus or orthodoxy or groupthink. We have a political system that's fragmenting, in which people are rejecting the broad church political identities with the compromises those identities necessarily entail in favour of narrower causes and smaller groups of like-minded people. We have a growing distrust in centralised authority in both, uh, in both politics and the media. We have a huge behavioural shift as we embrace the hyper-connectivity of, of, of mobile social media, um, one which seems to lead us to more intense engagement with like-minded people and more hostile antagonism with those with whom we disagree. Now, in finance, in banking, in politics, in the civil servants, in psychology itself, we know more than ever before about how groupthink works. Yet in the society around us, it seems we are creating the circumstances that foster it. In the fight against groupthink, there are practical steps that can be taken, and many of them have been, within institutions. The appointment of outsiders, protection of whistleblowers, freedom of information, um, better systems for appointment to boards, better training of boards, more diverse recruitment, including gender balancing, ethics legislation, and perhaps most important, though most abstract, the championing of debate instead of quashing it, celebration of dissent instead of ridiculing it. But because groupthink, consensus, orthodoxy is insidious, these are not enough. It gets into our brains, so we have to arm ourselves against it. George Orwell gave us a brief tutorial in how to do this in his essay, Politics and the English Language. Lazy, lazy use of language encourages lazy thought, he says, and lazy thought allows the corruption of politics. To think clearly, he says, is a necessary first step towards political regeneration. We're in an era when we hear a lot of talk about fascism. The word fascism, wrote Orwell, has now no meaning except insofar as it signifies something not desirable. He wrote that in 1946. So, to close, here is a list of words that similarly should set off alarm bells. Each of them can be, can be used with precision, but more often you'll hear them used reflexively. They are intended to provoke an expected reaction in the listener without going to the trouble of making an argument. They are each tiny engines of groupthink. When you hear them, ask yourself, does the speaker know precisely what they intend? Do they want the listener to know? Is there a discrepancy between what the speaker means and the listener understands? Is what the speaker is referring to an objective fact or an opinion? Are they making an argument or do they think they've already won the argument or do they think that what they're saying is inarguable? Think of these as trigger words for your groupthink antennae. Populist. Neoliberal. Hard left. Alt-right. Progressive. Sovereignty. Vulture fund. Russian interference. Deep state. Safe space. Snowflake. Political correctness. Dog whistle. High tax economy. Pay restoration. Squeezed middle. Fake news. Backstop. Thank you, Roger.